So now what? Save the world? Anyone could be one of them. Controller. Trust no one. Welcome to ThoughtSpeak, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of K.A. Applegate's 1996 book series, Animorphs. I am one of your hosts, Mitchell. And I am also one of your hosts, Coleman. And I'm Nate, and I am back. Yes, we are very <laughs> glad to have our third leg of the tripod back. Welcome back, Nate. Um, and I, I will just say it is good to be back talking to both of you, because if you are following this podcast in real time, you uh, are probably aware it's been quite a while since we've posted an episode. Uh, I'm not entirely sure when we released The Extreme, May, but it, it must have been in May. Um, and now here we are, uh, mid-July, recording our next episode, and honestly, uh, after anticipating that we'd return to a more normal recording schedule, a lot of important life stuff <laughs> kind of went down. Uh, not the least of all which, uh, uh, my wife got pregnant, and so a lot of time has been spent uh, working jobs to uh, get ready for this little bundle of joy that's coming this September. So uh, that's my end of it. And uh, another part of it, I feel, was just trying to coordinate between three grown adults all working jobs right <laughs> yep. yep yeah i mean it's tough and i mean my family is you know, were buying a house and uh i started a another podcast at some point and was dealing with that and and writing for the internet all over the place and exactly it's, it's been it's been I've had another podcast going as well um i don't know what nate's excuse is uh my job has been crazy <laughs> the last uh couple months actually been very busy putting in a lot of extra hours so uh, well, you know what? The, the main reason, well, I shouldn't say the main reason, but uh, a big reason why we've waited so long to do this is because we knew that we, we had to have you back for this one. This is uh, kind of one of the more important books in the series as far as um, where we are in the chronology of the series. Uh, after this, we kind of get into the uh, ghost-written filler territory, and this is one of the last books from the original authors and uh this is an idea that they're returning to that was established very earlier on in the series and i'm also very excited that nate you've now read book number one the invasion correct yep yep as part of uh, as prep for this podcast you asked me to read book number one uh the last podcast i was on was for the prequel book and forgive me i, I forget the title um, uh it was it was Andalite the Andalite chronicles. chronicles that's what it was yep <laughs> yeah um so that was the previous podcast that we did, and then uh, for this book, you had me read The Invasion, and then this is The Attack. Yep, The is Invasion that, and right? The Attack. Okay, okay cool. Yep, so I've got a little bit of background. Um, so that was nice. It kind of picks up right where The Andalite Chronicles leaves off, which is, is kind of nice. <laughs> it does like, it now. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, in reading this this next book, of course, The, the Attack, um, there were a couple things that I was a little like, oh, okay, so this is a character now, and uh, Eric yeah. was one of them. I was like, okay, there's an android, cool. Uh, yeah, you know, I I guess we could have prepared you a little bit about the characters, but really, <laughs> the dog android they, they do such a good job of explaining Eric's character right there in the beginning that I thought, eh, 
you'll figure it out. Yeah, like I. Yeah, well, you don't. You don't know Eric's love of dogs, which is that's that, important that's to me. True. That, that you I know that. Okay, yeah, well, Eric um, and his race, the Chi, who are these androids, um, they, they live in this underground kind of bunker area that's completely inhabited by dogs because their race uh, pretty much shares dog DNA within them. So, yeah. Well, they, 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 they took the Pimelites, their masters and creators from millions of years ago, they took their core, their essence, and implanted them in wolves, and that's how the modern dog was created. So how did they, how did they, like, earth wolves? Yeah, okay. earth wolves. They landed on earth, like, millions okay. of years ago, and uh, their their masters were dying because of the race that they fight yeah, in Yeah, the Howlers. They, they mentioned right. that the a howlers. bit, and I was wondering if you'd pick up on that, that, you know, Eric's race yeah. does have this backstory oh, yeah. with the Yeah, it's, it's the pretty howlers. explicitly explained, uh, like, yeah. I think a couple times. So that, yep. So the Pimelites were dying, their their masters, and they couldn't do anything about it because they were dying of a disease that they didn't even know what it was created by the Howlers. And uh, as they were dying, they took their essence and found these earth wolves and put it in them. And their masters were incredibly caring, joyful uh, race of people. And so that's why it created dogs. That's cool. Yeah, Eric is actually a really interesting character, um, but, you know, as it just so happens, this is one in which he shows a little bit of character development and growth, and so you get to see him, you know, act a little foolishly at some times. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but beyond the explanation of the chi, um, I, I would overall just love to hear your thoughts on the first book, now that you've actually read it, and particularly, yeah. you know, if it was more mature than you had expected going into it. Uh, okay, that's a fair question. I actually thought it was – my expectations were met. Um, I realized this is a book targeted for um, probably, I would guess, twelve the 12-year-old age range. Um, sure. And I think, like, we were all the same – we were all the same age, uh, or we are the same age. Um, so we were all probably 10, 12 in that age range when these books started coming out. And, yeah. Um, I feel like as a 12-year-old, um, it would have been – a good probably a good read with the still so still be a little challenging um as an adult um there's still a challenging. <laughs> it was so hard uh no i mean it was it was a it was a very easy read um i was able to get through pretty quickly um it was nice because like um like some of the other books i've read i'm like oh what, what does that mean and this was like oh, okay just going through it i can just um consume the story without having um, any sort of language barriers, despite English being my first in primary language, just um, it was just an easy read and easy to take in the story. Well, yeah, dude, when you're going from Game of Thrones to Animorphs, there, there's going to be a difference <laughs> in the narrative and and the the word usage, and yeah, it's it's written for generally you know younger audiences, but yeah, absolutely. And I I know it might have been kind of hard to read. Uh, about Marco eating something and not be like three chapters describing what he's eating. Um, <laughs> yep. But you know, I, I wouldn't mind George R. R. Martin writing uh, some Animorphs books either. Yeah, that'd be so. interesting. Be a lot longer than like a hundred pages. <laughs> if they, if he shot for 54 books, he'd end up writing probably like 300. <laughs> True. And I'd be okay with that because I think this kind of material in a creative person's hands like that could uh, probably do something pretty wicked with it. And I... he killed Cassie in, like, the opening scene. Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, and I actually really... I think he'd put a nice, like, adult tone to it. And I think I think the series would be extremely interesting 
um, with some very adult undertones. And I don't mean like sexy adult undertones uh, necessarily. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Erotic. Uh, <laughs> but, well, that's, uh, that's the Applegate's other series you got to read. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is it is interesting the idea that these these series come out when we're younger or whatever, and and this book series does mature way further even than you know you've read in the book twenty six where they're like fighting for their lives or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get to the end oh, of the series so and they're dealing with PTSD, the oh, sure. and they're you know and they're just trying to they're sacrificing their quadriplegic friends because it might win the war, and I mean it's just it's well, crazy. But I mean, it is interesting thinking that how great would it be now that all these fans are grown up to have a, an adult writer. Uh, do another take on the series where the premise is childish. I mean, people turning into animals to be superheroes, it is a very childish premise that the original authors kind of took a step further than the silly premise. And to have someone write it now for adults, the ridiculousness of the concept would actually be an incredibly important and interesting facet of the story. You know, the these adults with lives and and families and everything you know turning into wolves and attacking aliens you know it'd be, i think you could take an angle of it that'd yeah, be amazing i actually oh, I, completely agree i think that'd be really cool absolutely there there could be a lot done with this uh property still to come and you know the way that hollywood and the media is working these days it seems like that's not actually that far off from happening that's true a lot of i mean it's a big ya series that they have not adapted absolutely. yet especially really truly these, uh franchises from when we were kids kind of being rebooted and, and coming back um, and targeted not not as kids today but as kind of that um, more for the adult audience i think that'd be really it'd be interesting absolutely the, the power rangers reboot that they're working on yeah, currently if you've been following if yeah if you've been following that at all the producers the director dean israelite uh they're they're hardcore going into building a new audience for this oh and yeah a more and, and making audience. it more for adults as well which it's it's kind of mm-hmm. uh it's, it's kind of uh scary and it's kind of awesome i i really hope it works out and yeah. i think that the success yeah. of that will directly correlate to what they end up deciding to do with animorphs in the future and uh it'll determine its success as well well, not to derail us like completely real quick, but uh, my other podcast and stuff has been following this Power Rangers movie quite a bit, and it's inter- it really is interesting to see like what I remember from Power Rangers. I watched like the first two seasons or whatever that were really important to me, and you know it was just a silly show about you know them turning giant and fighting in a Megazord and and fighting in the parks, you know the Putty Rangers and all that stuff. I have a prediction um, for the movie, by the way. Well, real quick. Uh, so it is crazy to see this new take on it where they're like talking about their existential existence in the universe being these teenagers with powers and like uh, how they're going to deal with school and like it is almost taking like a Spider Man oh, cool. approach. That to is it. cool. It's really weird. I, I cool. like that, I like, that more yeah. realism. Um, my theory, however, is that Brian Cranston, excellently casted as Zordon, mm-hmm. will appear mm-hmm. in the film not as a head in a jar originally, but they're going to they're gonna use the Cran Man. And they're going to have him actually appearing as Zordon in the flesh. And my prediction is at the end of the film, we will see maybe the team is victorious, but Zordon loses his body or life or somehow. And that's how he ends up in trapped in his little tube. It's possible, but uh, there is some concept art for Power Rangers that showed um, Zordon in a tube, but he was just a full body, like hanging in the tube. Really? Yeah, because again, um, so I'm not I, sure if that's the I direction can't they imagine went, them or... wanting to waste Brian Cranston. He's a good head. I mean, if, if all we get is the head, I, I don't think that's horrible. Uh, well, I, I could see more for that. And um, 
Speaking of more for, we've got more for this book in store. And uh, before we really delve into it, we should talk a little bit about the cover and the backs, as we usually do. And um, this is not a bad-looking cover, to be honest with you. The the clothes, again, are a little dated on Jake, but um, <laughs> the, the, the tiger transformation sequence doesn't look bad. So uh, that's I'm just noticing this now. Do, do they make the color of the logo and everything else based on what the uh, kid model was wearing that you day? You know, that could just be in this cover. I don't think so. I'm looking at the cover of the next book we're reading, um, and that is not the case. So I don't think so. I don't know. I'm looking at the cover of The Solution, and Rachel's in a uh, mustard yellow shirt, and the title is yellow. Well, so. maybe sometimes mm. they go for it, but... <laughs> Anyway, uh, besides the cover, the inside cover is one of the cooler ones that we actually have gotten to see so far because it's another scene from the book, and uh, it's pretty sweet. It's the whole team up against a howler in their battle morphs, and you get to see the, the I mean, weird Lego Dr. Seuss-inspired world of the cool escort. That they did a scene, it's cool that they did a scene from the book. Um, I think there are some, some design choices in this book that... Uh, make it less cool for me. Well, and you gotta remember, this is from the 90s when stuff like that was considered futuristic. Um, but but I, I believe what they were really going for is just very alien and very bizarre. And uh, today we'd have a kind of a different view of that, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, it just, I bet the guy who photoshopped this went on to create the hugely popular Kinects, uh toy for children <laughs> i don't know about Looks that very much like that mm. <laughs> um or something i'm not sure it's just it's a little i think maybe if i was high <laughs> i would really enjoy that cover uh, i can fair, tell you man it doesn't it doesn't improve it that much uh-huh. um but on the other hand uh we had discussed this prior about how the the idea was there the vision was there it's just the actual translation the description of it not so much right yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Exactly. Um, if you don't have anything else to say about it, I would love to have Nate read us the back of the book. All right. I, can, I think I can handle that. I mean, we'll, we'll see here. Um, <clears throat> okay, here we go. The Animorphs have met the Elemist. Uh, he helped to save the kids when they were about to be eaten by a taxon. He helped, with a quote, to free two hork and restored Tobias's morphing ability. But even though the Elemist has enormous power, he is not all-powerful. He has an enemy, the Kryak. So the Kryak and the Elemist decide that a battle will prove their ultimate power. But they don't intend to fight each other. The Elemist will choose the Animorphs, Axe and Eric, the Chi. Uh, the Kryak will choose his own army. But if the Animorphs lose, they will be erased from the universe altogether. And there will be no one left to fight the Yerks. Bum, bum, bum. Dot, 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 dot. So right off the bat, yeah, this is uh, this sounds as though it would be a very big book. And, you know, we had you read uh, the first book where everything kind of goes down in the plot and the characters are established. And then we had you jump to this book, which, uh, like you said, a lot of stuff is different. They are now a like fully formidable team. They've had a lot of practice, a lot of experience, a lot of dying and a lot of mess-ups so far to get them to this point. So um, a lot of the problems that they have in battle in this book come from this overconfidence of what they've learned thus far. And uh, from the yeah, back, it sounds just that. epic. I'm- yeah, I mean, at this point in the book, we talked about this around book uh, 
like 17 or 18 they know what they're doing now they're 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 very good at fighting and fighting strategically with guerrilla warfare um not even counting marco and <laughs> it's just you know they, they they're very very good at what they do now and they go up against a force that is even better is militarily well, way above them well it was designed like bioengineered to be yeah. yeah the perfect fighters this is like this is like 100% this is like uh it is 1742 uh you know you have a british militia going up against like a you know set of redcoats like <laughs> yes you fought some battles you're really good now go up against something that knows what it's doing from and it was made like that from the start exactly um quick to point out that the the cover quote on this one was change is necessary where again it feels like they're pulling from a stock list of these <laughs> cover I quotes. don't know this one makes sense though being the last one written by Kay Applegate and they're about to switch to ghostwriters uh, oh I suppose yeah <laughs> that does make sense so although the, setting, last book, the, the last book was yeah the last book was the first ghostwritten one <laughs> Yeah, but now they're like, they got past that last book, and they're like, oh my gosh, we got a break. This was amazing. Just go go straight the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Um, However, this one works out, and a lot of those ghost-written ones are actually some of my favorites, so I'm not going to harp on them too much. Yeah. Um, But jumping into this book, I mean... We can all agree that this basically anamorphs the Hunger Games, right? That's actually Uh, what I Essentially. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Uh, and this is this was written a good bit deal. Actually, or, more accurately, I'd like to sentence. say it's it's the Animorphs Battle Royale. Yes, <laughs> there you go. If you if you want to do that, I do want I do want to start that. that war. <laughs> if you're one of those people, I would prefer. I'd prefer ah, to watch can be that written, too. Nothing can be written under the same premise as something else. Not, not even. It's not be even. I just different. prefer one over the other. That is all I'm saying. Yeah. Nah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, well, everybody does. That's not even up for discussion. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this book does start out pretty interesting, though. For I mean, it's not just a complete rehash of all the plots so far. It seems like <laughs> this was a swan song for well, them. Well, no, it's, you know, it's special because it's actually a prologue chapter where we get this prologue mm-hmm. dream recap of the whole Krayak foreshadowing because everybody had forgotten about it at this point pretty much because <laughs> it was uh it was like book 11 no no, no right? it was like five it was the second jake book because it was it was oh, the capture yeah. the one where he actually gets infested by a yurk and nate that's a great one <laughs> that's uh, one that, so that's so the next spoilers. one i'd pawn off on you if i could that's that's book six uh is the one that he gets six captured. yeah six yeah. It's the capture. It's called the capture. <laughs> oh, very cryptic. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, so they're playing the long game, setting up this plot. I don't know if they forgot about it and came back. Or well, yeah, and the, the prologue does a good job of reminding you that you know this is a vision that Jake saw when the yerk in his head was actually finally dying and leaving him. As they all get this weird image of Krayak, and because of this, Krayak, you know, knows about them, knows where they are. He's watching them, essentially, and it terrifies the living bejesus out of Jake, as it should. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's interesting because uh, I like how, you know, you could very easily be like, well, why are these two god forces, you know, like focusing on these one set of humans and everything? But it, it explains it a little bit. It goes into uh, the fact that Jake, specifically, and the rest of the Animorphs are messing with things in such a, such a way that they're causing ripples throughout the whole war. 
and you know they're hurting the Yurks not only on just you know little battle by battle basis, but they're hurting their ego and their how they think of themselves, and they're helping turn Yurks and free Horkbajir and like major things that could uh, like they go into further in this book. If the Yurks even uh, interact with this other race, you know it completely changes their perception on how they do war and what they should do with their lives and their goals. Uh, the Animorphs are that at a smaller scale for the rest of the universe. And that's why Krayak and, and why the Alemis takes notice of them and starts trying to affect their lives because they're butterflying effect the entire universe. <laughs> sure, that makes yeah. sense, yeah. And, uh, you know, all the numerous side adventures that they've had whenever they've been uh, whisked off of Earth, you know, they've interfered with a lot of other species at this point as well. Yeah. Let's not forget the psychic frog people. <laughs> Yeah, Lyrons. <laughs> exactly, Lyrons. Uh, um, yeah, but however, look. jumping right into this book, after we get this this nice recap, which um, I'm sure was absolutely necessary for you, Nate, right? Yeah, and actually, it seemed very smooth for me. Like, I'm like, okay, here's Cryak, and then we just kind of move on with the story. Uh, Jake discusses <laughs> it in his dreams. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, right, and so you had the I, back I of like the book to anything. explain it. True. You had the back I, of the book to explain it. I didn't. I didn't actually read the back of the book until I read it just now. Oh, well, dude, we could have given so, you some practice rounds. Well, that's fine. I'm, I'm a big um, boy. I can do it. I do think it's. I do think it's interesting the evolution of talking about crack and uh, the Olympus, where uh, the Olympus they start out saying the Olympus is part of this race of Olympus, and there's like hundreds and thousands of them probably running around messing with the universe. And in this book, they bring that into question. They're like, we don't even know if he's like more than one person or one. And then Krayak's kind of the same way, where they kind of introduce him in this book, and they call him the Krayak, when later they just call him Krayak. Yeah, um, they're, they're still not entirely sure what they're doing with these characters, but again, we get it all flushed out for good in the Elemist Chronicles, which is the second to the last book in the series. Which is great, because it's so interesting now that, you know, Elemist Chronicles was, was one of my favorite uh, books of all time for a long time. I mean, it was it's it's basically the life and times of God. Like, how did God come into existence? It's an and, excellent uh, book. It's, it's it's so incredible. And I like now reading all these other books. Uh, like, I never read the twenty six before uh, the attack before. And um, it's interesting how things they bring up in this book, things they question about the Olympus, how they described him at the beginning of the series. Uh, they basically pay. Uh, homage to that in the Olympus Chronicles by saying, well, yes, he is one person, but he actually at one point in the universe was hundreds of people all with the same mind. You know, it's almost like when people talk about like like God and Jesus. Yeah, and he's like Holy a Spirit, hive like, mind Trinity. thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just, uh, it's interesting that they take all that into account. Did, did you get this like God imagery <laughs> from Elemist? I'm sure. Are you talking to Nate or are you talking to me? I didn't think I had to specify there. <laughs> I didn't think so either, but no one talked. <laughs> it was Nate. Well, okay, so I thought you were talking to Coleman because you guys were talking about the Elemis Chronicles, and I thought maybe there was no, no, no detail um, there. Um, I, no, I wanted to know if you thought the Elemis was pretty representative of a god figure. Yeah, I think so. I didn't have like uh, like your classic uh, god image, like giant person in the sky or anything. Um, cause it talks about how he takes human form, um, and then just kind of disappears. 
You know, there's some stories about uh, the Lord doing that at one point as well. <laughs> okay, I, I, don't know. I, I believe there. I believe there was some loose collection of stories that were printed at one point. Yeah, <laughs> what do they call it? The um, uh, the New Testament. Uh, the there it is. I've, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Um, yeah. Anyway, but I didn't have this like um... the passion of the Olympus. <laughs> I didn't have this vision of of like an all powerful being. I I had. Um, the way I read it, um, my interpretation was an all-powerful, all-powerful being that had taken human form as to um, be most relatable to uh, the characters he was interacting with. He or she well, and he with. he even appears, uh, I believe, at some point in this book in his like elemisty form, which is kind of humanish. It's actually pictured on the cover it's of like the Elemist Chronicles. Elf. Yeah, it's like an old man elf sort of. Okay. Um, he has that form that he that he that's the official artwork of him. Um, we don't actually ever get any official artwork of Krayak, but there's some pretty good online imagery that that sets it up. I think the Olympus Chronicles describes him best. Like yeah. he has a form at some point in the Olympus Chronicles that it's almost it's basically like, the size of a planet, like a like a yeah, mechanical he planet. Yeah, he doesn't need that form eventually, but he's still like represents himself as that but like a planet with like machinery and people living on top of him and he's one big eye it's just it's, it's like biomechanical i picture like something hr giger would have like drawn sure yeah uh, yeah crazy. exactly very steampunky i'm so sure i actually because they kept talking they kept referencing crack's eye and so um what i kept <laughs> the of, eye of mordor <laughs> yeah i kept thinking of sauron um, yeah yeah and now that he's as big of a planet i'm like combining that with um the planet thing in the fifth element and they're like they're like one thing, so it's just a big, like Sauron eye floating through space. This no, what's that the, wouldn't uh, be the first oh fifth element comparison we've made on this podcast. Oh. I'm pretty sure. Do we have Do we have any fans of the 1980s Transformers movie in the house? Uh, n- anyone? Not me. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, yeah, I, I, I missed all. that one. <sighs> okay, well there was a giant planet size. Transformer oh, I know about that, that though. Is say. that Unicron? Yeah, Unicron. Yeah, I know about Unicron. That. I was See, thinking. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. tight. I'm old school. I know. Yes. <laughs> well, barring those descriptions, um, this book actually opens right up with the whole Animorphs team on this field trip to this like janky stage production of The Lion King. And uh, while they're just there hanging out and making fun of the show, time stops. And whenever that happens and Tobias and Axe are like whisked into the room, you know what's up. Everybody knows what's up. The back of the book told us what's up. The Elemist is there. Yeah, and they don't even question it this time. They're just like, uh, and it's not, they're not at a performance. It's at their gym. It's like a um, school. Uh, oh my gosh, what are they called? What are they called? It's school. A when school they brought everybody production. to the gym. Assembly? An assembly. No. Assembly. Assembly. Oh it. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> assembly. It's like an assembly where they brought in those people to, like, I don't know, cheer everybody up or I don't, I don't know what, you, what their purpose was. But either um, way, they are, uh, they are, enjoying taking this time to rest from the last book where it was definitely a, a huge ordeal of survival for them and i'm sure a little a little production like this is uh, well warranted but unfortunately yeah the elemist has other plans for him but yeah i do like how they don't question that's the elemist like they're not even surprised they're like okay he's here let's wait and see how what form he brings up you know, like they're they're just waiting for him, uh, and just kind of like oh, they're each sick other. of him at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I got I kind of got the impression that like when he shows up, it's like, okay, what do you want now? Yeah, basically, because he, and when he okay, oh well, when he just he demonstrates his powers, and you get the image that he's pretty all powerful. So 
they they know that you know he's not the kind of guy that you can say no to. Even though he tells them they can always say no, they always have a choice. Even though they tend to choose what he wants them to choose. Well, I thought this was interesting when he poses this choice to them. You know, come help fight on this planet, and I'll you know it'll help the war. He doesn't say it'll win the war. He doesn't give him the, them the usual like big choice. This is something that hey, if you guys want to, if you want to help me out with this. Uh, this will this will actually hurt the Yurks. Oh yeah, in a and major so th- way. I think of all the choices they make with the Elimis, this one was kind of uh, hey, are you guys up for this? Well, you know? and the thing is, the the choice that they make doesn't necessarily even help them, like you said, but it will help the rest of the universe way, 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 way later on in time. If there's anything yeah. left, ooh, <laughs> ooh. Oh Wouldn't it be horrible if the Yerks took over the whole universe and they get to that planet and they're like, oh, we didn't have to. <laughs> there was another way all along. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that's different, though, about this Elemist appearance um, is uh, that instead of just appearing and being you know, very vague like he normally is, we get a lot more of his backstory than has generally been uh, given to up to this point. Mm-hmm. And he even goes into the setup of explaining about Krayak and, you know, how he's his arch nemesis and everything and poses to them uh, that he and Krayak, instead of battling throughout the universe and just wrecking a shit ton of galaxies, they decided to just play games to kind of take it easy. <laughs> so their, their games <laughs> instead pit, you know, aliens against each other to decide who's going to live and die. Um, so God help us if either of them gets mad and flips the yeah, board. Right. <laughs> Um, so essentially the setup here is that the Elemis team uh, consists of the Animorphs and Eric, and the uh, Krayak's team is these seven Howlers. Um, and it's going to be fighting for the fate of this alien race, who they know as the Escort. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you mentioned that the descriptions are pretty awful in this book, but I feel like we should read them anyway, just so the viewers or the listeners know. <laughs> Presumably, the listeners have read this Presumably, book, but. but it bears mentioning that they were not the most frightening-looking race we'd ever encountered, but they were definitely not even slightly human. They had heads like vultures thrust forward on long necks. The necks protruded from the shoulders that were sort of an oval platform, flat across. From the shoulders dropped two arms, one on each side, each arm jointed three times, ending in a hand made up of one very long tentacle-like finger and two smaller hooked, sharped claw fingers. Um, they walked in a way that made it seem like they were crawling on their knees, backward, but they went forward still. They had two thick legs, maybe two and a half feet long, then came what looked like knees, followed by calves that extended forward, lying flat on the ground. Those ended in feet, each with a single, long, reprehensible toe and two smaller claws jutting from the sides. So basically, and they make this horrible gasping noise they're they're the most annoying ugly creatures that you could think of really see in my best and worst quality when reading is and i've talked about this earlier on the show um when i don't like an image that's oh, put I, in my head yeah, by a i book, change it i, I, I put change my, my own, own. Yeah. yeah i do that too. i change it i saw these creatures as short and pudgy and fat yep. And just like knocking into each other, running around, and like, uh, like wheezing, like um, Peter Pettigrew and uh, uh, Harry Potter. Sure, you know? yeah, like, oh yeah, that kind of like runty little ratty uh, kind of guy, and just running around. So it just it made it easier for yeah, me. I, I actually did the same thing, <laughs> and I, I do that when I read. Um, although my image was a little more uh, 
Tonberry-esque from Final Fantasy. <laughs> sure. Oh, nice. <laughs> so still short, still kind of stocky, I guess, but... Rose. Yeah. There's, a, there's a particular type of uh, slime enemy from the uh, Dragon Warrior or Dragon Quest series of games that I have in my <laughs> mental image for, for these guys, too. <laughs> Animorphs headcanon. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, they're meant to look pretty bizarre. I also... I also made the howlers way scarier in my head than stupid looking lava creature oh, things. Oh yeah, you actually I did that do too. get a good look at one of the howlers on the inside cover panel. And it's basically as described. I mean, they got the lava lava e skin and the claws. They're kind of like lava wolverines. The X-Men. Well, see, I pictured I pictured like the predator with like cooled lava skin like the black black yeah. and rocky skin cool. yeah like something like that so, and the weird um, baby okay. blue eyes it's just weird well that yeah. to me kind of sounds like they'd be like dead eyes um what i was imagining yeah. was uh i don't know if you guys played much world of warcraft but i thought of the like uh the werewolves from world of warcraft but but not with like nice fur kind of on their body more that that hardened cracked skin um black of, of course yeah. but uh, that that's kind of the image I came up with. Not that beautiful rustic fur. <laughs> no, they have. no, absolutely wow. not. The, the, the uh... manicured, brushed, <laughs> pressed fur. Right. That it's a race of uh, metrosexuals in that game. I'm just telling you. <laughs> so, um, Krayak or not Krayak, Elmest proposes. You know, this game. This is the the thing that I've come with you or come to you with this time. And like he does, he likes to give them the choice. So we get a nice little chapter of them. Uh, later, going back to their normal lives once time is resumed, and uh, talking about their situation and, and what they want to do about it. And of course, as we all know, they're going to choose to end up going to help them. Yeah, and this is this is a big decision by them because again, like they could very easily die. And uh, like you said earlier, Mitch, they're they're way more confident on their skills, so they're like, yes, if this will hurt the Yurks, we're all for it. Blast us off. Let's go to this planet and. Just from their interactions later in the book, you can tell that at this moment, they thought they were going to save this peaceful race of nice aliens who they could relate to, and uh, it's not oh, the yeah. case. Oh, yeah, expectations were not at all met as soon as, uh, well, everybody basically agrees um, on it one by one, and, and Eric is, of course, their other teammate, even though they don't realize it at the moment. Um, and as soon as they, they're all in, they're teleported instantly to the escort homeworld. And uh, right away, they, they bump into these creatures who are extremely obnoxious. Um, they're like, like Marco says, it's a planet of salesmen because they're all wandering around trying to buy and barter things from the team. And they, they want the strangest things like body parts, hair, and most of all, memories, which is a big, big plot point of this book is the, the buying and selling and just transferring of memories. I feel like I'm, I'm, I can't help but see this book in the eyes of two authors who are like out of ideas but love the series and uh, like are ready to give it up. And then they write the story of this race of creatures who are just money grabbing and just want to buy and sell your memories. And it's, I don't know. It just seemed like they were talking about themselves a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I never even thought of that. Um, I will say, though. That this um, buying and selling of memories intrigues me a lot to the point of where I almost expect that that is where entertainment in the future will go if our technology ever catches up to it um, to be able to record things like memories from inside your brain. 
Because if, if you I think mean, about already... it, movies and entertainment TVs, they're really just people's experiences, people's stories. If you could witness those from the viewpoint of, say, you know, a really interesting, fascinating person who's lived an interesting life, their memories would play like a really good movie with some editing. Well, no, but see, we're already doing that. It's called YouTube. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, it's like movies and TV shows are we're being told premise. stories. But, I mean, I love watching, like, Fail Army, just watching someone ride a bike and just eat face, <laughs> you know, just completely <laughs> knock over or accidentally go into yeah, traffic. Yeah, those are our, those are like our YouTube way. videos, is other people's painful <laughs> memories, <laughs> which is exactly. what these, this alien race deals in. And it's, I don't know, I like it. It's clever. This this alien race inspired World Star hip hop. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what anyway. that is. It's uh I I don't know what it is either. It's like an urban culture uh platform for for entertainment, I guess. Videos, yeah, videos. For videos and a lot of them are people fighting. Oh, okay. Like, right. like like in a schoolyard fight or something okay. or or rednecks in a trailer park. Yes. Sweet. Yes. So if you ever see a video of someone fighting and someone yells out world star, you know, that's, that's what they're referencing. I will will be watching for that in any video I watch now, like forever. (laughs) (laughs) Cute cat falls off the couch. (laughs) World star. (laughs) Right. Well, as soon as they're on this planet and they figure out, you know, what these, these escort aliens are really like and what they're after, they uh, come up with a good idea to buy this uh, guide escort to kind of show them around and they do this by selling some of rachel's hair which she's none too pleased about but it works out pretty well for the team especially considering that they initially wanted way more like body parts and organs and whatnot <laughs> i i totally picture that like uh, you know it's been done in a bunch of movies where like the cute character like gets their hair like cut off or blown off by some explosion and they're like even cuter afterwards with a short oh, haircut. Oh yeah, right. That's yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Rachel cuts her hair finally and it actually looks good. <laughs> but uh yeah, this whole this whole buying and selling thing, it, it's it's crazy to me that the Animorphs, I thought, I mean, it's almost breaking character a few times. No matter how annoyed with them they are, honestly, in this book, they really sit and talk about whether they should actually save them or not because they're annoying. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's you, it shows yeah, very, very plainly that, you know, the the fact that they're dealing with the escort and finding out what they, <laughs> who they are, what they are, plays into the story because they're so annoyed, especially after their first loss against the Howlers, that they they see them as really not worth the, the hassle, not worth risking I, their I, lives. I understand it. It's not, it's not actually breaking character because... It's them confronting the fact that they're not invincible and that they might actually die for this incredibly annoying race. Yes, yes. So I actually really kind of appreciated that part because it, it really humanizes all of the characters. Not that you, not that they're not human, but um, it makes them more relatable and um, you get this impression that they're not perfect. Now, granted, I haven't read the other books, so this is just, this is just uh, sorry, this is just my third book, um, but... I, I kind of get the impression like, oh, everything kind of works out all the time. And with this, with that particular part of the story, um, you get this feeling like they're, they're scared. They are questioning their decision to try and save this race of, um, in there and everyone that seems to be part of the party, um, this just awful race, um, that doesn't really, I guess, provide much. 
they're just money grabbing. And they are just kids. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yep, yeah. Made absolutely. this decision. So they're they're acting like kids. They're acting yep. like and that's selfish actually kids. One and, thought I I thought of um, was that like they're trying to balance growing up with kind of more more childish thoughts of like oh uh, this this is dumb I don't want to do this. To your <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you got to think too. Um, now Nate doesn't know this, but uh, he's right. Like he says, everything feels like they just win all the time at the beginning of this book and that this is showing their humanity. Um, they have been winning lately and they've done some really big hurtful things to the Yerks in the war. Yeah. And that's why they're so high at the beginning of this book. But I mean, Nate, if you went back and read book two through, you know, 25, those books are literally them failing all okay. the time. Like constantly. <laughs> yes, true. There's, there's entire books that are not like, okay, we're going to have a mission at the beginning of the book. We're going to go do that mission. Oh, we failed miserably. We didn't come close to coming anywhere close to finishing this mission. And oh, we're about to die now. And it was all for nothing. Or, like those are multiple. Or books. <laughs> there are books like uh, uh, number seventeen, the warning that stands out in my mind, where they uh, confront um, Visor Three's twin brother. Ooh, um, <laughs> where it ends. <laughs> it ends so open endedly. Remember how it ended with um, them not necessarily winning, not necessarily <laughs> losing, just getting out with their lives. But they ended in a very questionable situation where it's like, well, did did Jake go back and like finish the mission and kill the dude? Or you know what happened? Yeah, they never they never answer whether he went back and murdered someone yeah. or not. <laughs> Basically, which I think we know from the future books he didn't. But um, or did he? Anyway, the the next part of this book <laughs> after it's it's done a very good job of setting them up as yeah like not uh, too unconfident about what they're going into. Um, the guide takes them to this mall like area where they encounter these. Uh, uh, subspecies of the escort called the Warmaker escort and they have a little bit tougher description but we won't go into that um and they they you know throw them for a loop for a little bit but they're able to easily kind of handle these guys and i think that only helps to uh build their overconfidence a little because as soon as the first howler is spotted by eric who is so noticeably freaked out about it that his hologram is even glitching um they they enter into this battle that they're definitely not ready for. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, sorry, man. Uh, I'm pl- sorry, I'm playing start- Pokemon Go over here. I don't have a witty <laughs> no, no, comeback. No. My startup my startup disc is almost full, so I was trying to desperately delete things so it didn't stop me recording. Oh, holy crap, dude. Well, handle that, and I'll keep talking. <laughs> exactly. So now you see, yeah, absolutely, why that was my answer. Uh, well, absolutely. Um, they're, they're into this fight, unprepared and overconfident, and, you know, Eric's not even able to warn them about the Howler's main howling ability, which is, like, oh, so important. I don't know how he couldn't have thrown that in. And th- that's the problem, uh, kind of with the plot of this book, I suppose, is that Eric holds back information from them that would be extremely vital and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of glossed over as a plot point. Um, but he, he definitely could have given them a little bit more warning about this, especially since the howlers just use this ability and completely overpower the team. Um, and they, they get their asses handed to them. Were you expecting that Nate? <laughs> uh, well, no, I guess. No, <laughs> no, you thought they'd be able to handle at least one. Um, 
I don't know. I thought it was too early in the story to really have have kind of a big victory. So I kind of thought it would be more of a, them figuring out how the Hollows work, and then they would come back and, and have a massive victory later. Um, yeah. Sure, I'll, yeah. It's I'll like hold an my introduction. further comments later in the in the recap. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, this is this is a very good introduction because it's just one of them and it does demonstrate their main ability and you get to see the team really go into panic mode as, you know, Jake's desperately trying to order everybody into their morphs and uh, we've got Axe who is freaking out because he uh, has to run away once this uh, Howler's defense or offense, whatever you want to call it, happens um, and it's just really not a good time. For everybody, they they're completely and utterly decimated by just this one enemy, and in fact, the battle kind of cuts off with uh, Jake in a bad state. And the next chapter, he just wakes up somewhere else, and we've got the rest of the team telling him about how they had to get out of there. The only way that they survived was because of Eric and his infinitely important hologram technology, <laughs> which is it seems a little overpowered at this point. Gosh, and then this is plain for some reason. Yeah, well, this chapter is really nice yeah. because we get to see the team in their you know lowest moment of defeat here, where they realize what they're truly up against. And once again, they're they're talking about if they can really win, if it's worth it, um, what you know, if the escort are are worth saving, and uh, ultimately they decide that they just need more information, which is totally true. And they ask Eric for more, and he's not able to give them any more. But uh, Guide is able to provide them by, once again, sell, selling and bartering some of their, their body fluids or whatever away. They're able to uh, come across some Howler memories, um, which... Yeah, he. I mean, his, his exchange uh, with them is, is hilarious, because he's getting richer and richer throughout this entire book just by getting them to give up more and more of their memories and, and do a big trade for the end. Right, yeah, they're constantly uh, building up Guide to be in a really good position on his homeworld, and it's he's one of the better, uh, more grounded characters of the story and um, just a good addition overall. Something to give us yeah, I mean, a little bit of, of entertainment or likability from these escort. <laughs> It's the same way, it's the same re- reason that Bill Gates got so rich on our planet, you know, just interaction with aliens. <laughs> sure, if you subscribe to crazy that's, theories. That's one theory. <laughs> it's. I mean, I thought this was, I thought everybody believed the same thing, but I guess Townspeak is just going to devolve um, into a, a crackpot theory discussion on aliens every episode. I'm okay with, I'm okay with that. Um, but yeah, moving, moving on from here, I mean, it's just, the way this whole plot goes out with them fighting the howlers and using the escort eventually as cover um it's it's a different tone for animorphs in general because they've had fights they've had missions all that but uh this whole book is based on like the structure of a game between uh the seven and seven chosen by either side you know it's it's it makes it a very refreshing uh viewpoint from two authors who said they were out of ideas at this point in the series um i thought the structure of the book and everything was was really different yeah um it was it's definitely an interesting it's more mission based than some of these books tend to be um because they're pretty much tossed right into the main thing right away um <clears throat> but yeah uh, they they end up learning a lot about the howlers through uh these visions that that uh eric can show them with their holograms 
And they basically learn that they've never been defeated and that they were specifically created by Krayok just to be murder machines. They, they kill everything they come across. I think Eric mentions they've killed like 17 different species so far just on their own. <laughs> Which, And what they figure out, I don't know if this is jumping ahead. I, oh, say, ahead, like, I kind of feel like that's cheating in, their, in the Elemist and Krayok's like battle, or not battle, but game. Um, because Elemist, Elemist picked something that already existed, and, and maybe it's explained that he actually created the Andalites ability to more more directly than than has been alluded to me um but the krayak like specifically created the howlers i'm what kind of surprises me is that the elemist didn't do the exact same thing um, well if you think about it the elemist did pretty much create the anamorphs by putting elfengor in the position that he was in to give him them the technology so that's true eh. You could say everything the Olympus has done for them and all the books previous to this, uh, including the very beginning with Elfangor, was to have seven teenagers, or yeah, seven, yeah, well, six teenagers and Eric, uh, to be in a position to win this game at so this point. For the long time. This could be their entire purpose. Okay. Yeah. And he's kept them alive. He's helped them. You know, sure. he gave Tobias his morphing power back. That that happened. Yeah, um, and taking even further. You could take it even further. Yeah, that was his choice, because, by so, the way. So, oh, okay. so Krayak, Krayak, uh, Krayak created the Howlers, but this was during a time, if you've read the Olympus Chronicles, this is during a time where he was creating the Howlers to just wipe out as many species as possible, and the Olympus created the Pimelites, which is the, the race that Eric is, the Chi, it was the masters who created them. Uh, he created the Pimelites to spread life throughout all the planets, and it's very, very heavily insinuated that earth was one of those planets that the Pimelites uh, seeded <laughs> seeded for life. So they both kind of created each other. Okay. All right. That makes it's sense. It's a confusing, but awesome backstory. Technically. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's very hearty. And you know, if, uh, if these were uh, adapted into episodes, I think two part episodes would be perfect for most of these books. Um, I think that would be the logical point for the uh, the ending of the first episode. That or them losing the battle, right after losing the battle. Um, yeah. Because now the scene kind of shifts to um, the the next morning. They've they've managed to get a kind of a not peaceful night of sleep, but cuts right in with the howlers coming after them. And uh, Jake is kind of freaking out because he wasn't expecting it so soon and ordering everybody to just try and focus on escaping by morphing fly. And, you know, we've got Axe trying to be a hero and prove himself uh, from that last encounter where he ran away. And he's not backing down. He's, he's waiting for the Howler who's right, at, right on him. Uh, but he does eventually I will listen. honestly say... <laughs> Honestly, in the last, uh, I don't know, like 10, 15 books, I think this is the most interesting character moment for Axe is him being the only one really affected by the Howler's scream at that time and running away. And then in the whole rest of the book, he's just flat out reckless trying to prove that he's brave. I, I thought that was uh, that was a good turn for him. Well, yeah, we definitely needed a little bit more of Axe. And, you know, I'm sorry that, Nate, you didn't get to see him in that first book. He doesn't come in until a couple books later. Uh, when they actually rescue him from his uh, crashed spaceship on Earth. 
Um, but yeah, X is, is, is shown to be this very honor-driven kind of alien um, who's got, you know, this creed that he lives by where Andalites think are... like ancient samurai. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. Samurai. Like a centaur samurai. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a big deal for him to be defeated and not only just defeated, but to run away. Oh boy, that's no good. I mean, you got you got the idea of what Andalites are like from the Andalite Chronicles, mm-hmm. so you know a little bit about their species. Um, I keep forgetting he read that <laughs> <laughs> because he's read he, he hasn't read a lot of the series, and it's weird that we made him read like one of the backstory prequel side books. Well, that's that's <laughs> why we did it, so he would have this like overall arcing knowledge of some things in the story yeah and i think that actually has helped me a lot like when i first started reading um the invasion in the last couple months here i um i actually it picks up sorry you teach talk oh okay (laughs) so i actually there because i think i i think i read andalite chronicles it's probably roughly this time last year that we recorded maybe it was i don't know i don't remember but it was things had gotten kind of fuzzy over time um, but it was it was helpful to refresh it, and I actually thought like, how did that? I thought like, I don't know. I I remember the crash scene differently. Um, my memory's awful, so I'll try because it up you to get me it just from like the perspective of Elfengor. You have had it from the right. perspective of Elfengor. The beginning of that first book was there at the end of Andalite Chronicles, yeah, just from different it. characters' perspective. Yep, and I, I remember that. Um, what I remember from Andalite Chronicles was like a like the ship was like crashing and like the alerts were going off and like, it was just chaos. And then like he crashes at the, the construction site, but reading the attack, that's doesn't seem to be quite how it happened. It was more of a, the ship kind of landed on its own and then it was, it was just there. There wasn't necessarily a, a crash per se. Yeah. Yeah. So to speak, I mean, the, the, main details are there that the Elfengor ship did end up in a construction site and, um, you know, the, the Yerks were right after him. Now that we're, we're discussing the very beginning of the series, how do we jump back into this? (laughs) It's hard for me because I haven't, um, none of the podcasts I've recorded in like the last three months have been story driven. Oh, sure. Like where we follow a story beat for beat. We just talk about it overall. So everything I'm adding is just like, well, I think Axe's character arc in this one is crazy. You're trying to you're trying to keep up with plot, plot points. No, no, yeah, and I mean that's why I want to just make sure we discuss everything the book has to offer. Um, and and we're right in the middle of them, you know, encountering the Howlers once again and just barely managing to make it out. And that's kind of a recurring thing now is they're they're just working on trying to survive and stay alive. And they managed to get. Eric and Guide out of there with their hologram trickery again. Um, just an important plot point to mention. At this point, they still think that the Howlers are just murder machines that are going to kill, you know, anything in their path. Um, so they think they're they're very not safe there. Uh, and this is when Guide decides to take them to the place called a Servant Guild because there's all these different like sects of the uh, the escort. Um, yeah. Which was another kind of cool thing I thought about their uh, their species, how they divide off into these little kind of clubs that they have. Yeah, but it actually affects their uh, biology as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so their their hosts would develop in different ways, I guess, and that's how they came up with the War Maker Iskrut as well. Um, but they they end up in this place where uh, they're 
they're confronted with this information that the escort are actually highly evolved yurks that basically went about uh, creating their own host bodies and just sort of evolved together into this one perfect symbiotic species. Um, and they're very, very torn up about that at first. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's not exactly, they're, they're not like the Yurks in an evolved stance. They're just another parasitic species that is extremely reminiscent of the Yurks, especially since they uh, started out as aggressively parasitic, like the Yurks, where they would take a host and take control. And they just learned a new way. They learned a different way to become symbiotic, and, and then they truly became symbiotic. That was a thing that Animorphs couldn't wrap their heads around at first, was that it's no longer a host and a parasite. It's two species that literally can't live without the other. Exactly, and, and that's what makes it kind of okay. <laughs> and I actually thought that was an interesting thing to introduce um, because, as we mentioned earlier, these are kids. Um, so it makes sense that like their their gut instinct is to immediately like hate um, what the Yort did. Um, but then, as as the story progresses, it, it makes more and more sense, and they 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 kind of they I think they grow a little and be able they're, when they're able to understand um, that it is a symbiotic relationship. Sure, and I mean it really does go against kind of what they've been battling and combating this whole series. Um, but in the end, I think we find that it really makes sense for their overall cause. This is kind of one of the better fights that they can be fighting in the long run of, of just everything in the universe, not just what happens on their fight on Earth. And it's very hard for humans and especially children uh, to get on board with the idea of that, hey, what you're doing isn't causing and affecting during your lifetime like this oh, yeah. is a, kids this is a cannot very long plan game. for the future trust me i, I work can't plan them. for their own future no. yeah <laughs> very much a, a like uh, if it doesn't affect me why do i care type mindset yeah but i mean this is probably one of the more important things they've ever done in the series even winning back their own planet who knows how big an effect that actually ended up having on the yurks uh we we know that it had a big effect, oh yeah but i'm saying like but i'm saying like even if if they were just a random planet that was being attacked by the Yurks, they might get their planet back, and then hurrah, the Yurks go on to invade the universe anyway. Uh, but this is something that really would set back the Yurks if they found out about. Exactly, and it, it really does. Um, well, it will. <laughs> I think it will. Um, but the book then jumps to uh, the team once again facing the Howlers, and uh, this is where they're coming for them, and um, their, their strategy at this point is still to just run um, because at this point, they conveniently learned that the Howlers can't shoot the escort in the way. It's like rules of engagement or something. And in this ensuing battle, I mean, Cassie almost dies, and I'm led to believe so does Marco. Like, it's it's very chaotic in this encounter. Yeah, they get close. And did they, did they ever say anything about, I mean, the Animorphs were never told that they couldn't hurt the escort. No, but they're there to save them specifically, so why would they want to hurt them? I mean, if it beats the howlers, start throwing them off of bridges. Sure, and... Yeah, use them like use them like oversized <laughs> squeaky toys and just throw them at them. Well, they effectively yeah, they do, do that, use them as but... shields. I mean, they're oh yes, like they're exactly. hiding in crowds of them. Uh, at least once they figure out that uh, the uh, they can't be shot at. Right, it plays the into their their final plan once they really realize what they're dealing with. Um, they they actively make you know shielding themselves with the <sighs> civilians part of the plan, which if they were doing on Earth would be way more messed up. 
but yeah. uh, it'd be a little horrific. For, for some reason, it works out well here because they are an effective shield because they can't be hurt by their enemies. That's why. <laughs> but uh, this this whole thing with the escort, I mean, I thought it was clever how they were used in all the the guilds and their culture. Um, he, he, just take a step back from the book as two writers making this all up. Yes, they have a base concept that's been used pretty often. You know, it's, it's like a Hunger Games or Battle Royale or whatever. Uh, but but the idea that this race in the middle of it, I think another author would just make that some generic race, not really care much about them, uh, what they are, what they do. But it's actually integral to the story, their culture and the different levels of their culture and individuals at different levels of that culture. It's incredibly important to how the story plays out. So I thought that was, I mean, this just shows that I know this is a kid series. I know this is, you know, it's Animorphs, whatever. But I think these authors, as we've gone on to see them win awards and be these huge authors that they started here. I mean, this is kind of why we started doing Thought Speak to begin with, is that these authors were ahead of their time. And the first thing they happened to be writing was this book series about kids turning into animals, fighting aliens, you know. (laughs) And it works out so well, at least I think. Um but in this big bloody battle, which, by the way, um, besides the the situation in the first book, which wasn't so gory or bloody um, as it is just disturbing, um, what did you think of all the violence in this particular book, Nate? Um, I liked it because it seemed chaotic, and I think that's exactly what what this type of engagement would have been. I think it would have been extremely right. chaotic um, because the kids are are faced against these, like, um, these basically, like, bioengineered warriors. Um, and, I don't know, it seems like there'd be a lot of running, and they'd try a couple things that would fail, and that's exactly what, what happened. Um, so I, I actually really liked the way that that all went down. Well, good, because this is not the first huge bloody battle where you know main characters are almost dying and having to morph out just in time um we've seen it before but i mean it's always brutal to imagine and in this encounter uh falcon jake manages to push a holler off of a ledge and then acquire it as they're falling and uh remorph just in time uh again we've seen that scenario a time or two in this book where somebody's falling and has to remorph in time. Um, but you know, the cool thing about it is that he managed to acquire another creature while doing that. Yeah. And that he, and that he planned for that. I mean, he jumped off to, so he could rush down and acquire it, you know, as fast as he could and then get back up. Cause he knew that would be important. Well, yeah. And it really turns the tide of the battle. Yeah. I mean, Jake is, Jake is making some big decisions in this book. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, and and as soon as he's you know back in the sky and meets up with Tobias, uh, learns that everybody somehow managed to escape once again, and uh, due to Eric's holograms coming in and playing a big part, mostly they just managed to hide the team for long enough to get out of their bad situations. Well, a huge moment in this series finally comes when they uh, Jake returns to the team and he and Cassie share their first you know on screen. On book kiss, and it's it's been a long time coming. 
yeah, I mean, this is a big buildup for the series. Obviously, they've been playing co- playing coy with each other and, and rushing over to each other whenever they're about to die, like, over and over again. But somebody always turns away with a half smile or uh, an embarrassed look or something like well, that. Well, it's been, it's been first... hinted at and implied thus far, but this is the first real yeah. big, you know, it's it's out there now. And Rachel even says it's about time. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I don't well, think... I don't think the authors could leave the book uh, series. If they thought this might be the last one they write, I don't think they could leave without finishing that off at least. Exactly. So, exactly. Having read having read just the one other book with these characters, um, so this is book two for me, and my thought also was like, geez, come on, just make out already. So it was nice that it happened. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, you, you didn't have to slug through 23 <laughs> books of nope. build off. Of them just staring at each other and casting off side glances, yeah. Well, I mean, so I guess my biggest question for you, Nate, specifically, is that you read the first book, which gets wacky, mm-hmm. wacky in the sense that aliens come down and attack these kids and they have morphing powers and all that. Do you feel like the just going to this next book that the series escalated? Like, it's is it unfamiliar from that first book um, where the series got to this that's point? That's a good question. No, I don't think it's unfamiliar. Um, there is some detail I feel like I missed out on, um, but I can definitely see... Knowing that there are other books between the first one and then what what we're talking about now, knowing those other books, I can definitely see the progression. Um, There's a few things that I was kind of confused on. Like I made a note of, I think Axe refers to Jake as Prince Jake. I I have no idea why. Um, (laughs) So that's... (laughs) It's kind of an ongoing joke with them is that, so they, they, they rescue this Andalite and he's an Arist. Mm -hmm. He's a, a, a young warrior. So he's like a cadet, basically, in the army, but he's not a full-on warrior okay. yet. And so uh, a thing with them, it's not just the cadets, but uh, the way the Andalite military is structured, you have your commanders, you have your captains or whatever, but you also have princes, which they're they're not real royalty. They're just like, if a Andalite has done something great in war, or if they've done some huge, it's like a Medal okay. of Honor uh, for them, they become princes, and everybody refers to them in royal terms. It's like the highest chain of um, command, and basically every cadet is assigned to a prince. Like, that's a big thing in their culture, is they, they follow these princes into battle. And so him choosing Jake to be his prince, well, because Jake's really the only one around there that can be, he's the leader of the team, um, is, a, is a very big deal for him. I mean, he's he's allied himself with the team, and Jake is his leader, who he is supposed to take commands from. And as you can see in this book, sometimes it's really challenging for him to do that. Um, there's there's later books in the series where Axe is very much struggling with whether or not he wants to continue following Jake's lead. And at at one point, oh, in one of my favorite books, he basically goes rogue. And <laughs> and almost a lot of people die from it. Well, a lot of people yeah, do. I mean, Axe always struggles uh, whenever he's like, yes, uh, Jake is his prince. He's chosen to follow him. But if they're in a situation where they meet other Andalites or they actually come into contact with the Andalite military, mm-hmm. I mean, he's pretty torn in those situations. Okay. And uh, he doesn't always make uh, the greatest decisions. But that's that's why he calls him prince, and it's a joke, because Jake, every time he calls him prince, Jake says, don't right, call yeah, me prince. Right, yeah, he's like, stop you it. Know? I don't, don't call me that. Um, yeah, so, exactly. So, and then, just having read this, jumping into this book, I thought, what, why, what's the joke here? I don't get it. Um, but that, that makes well, a lot of sense. Well, that same joke has now. literally been in, uh, in every other book, basically, where <laughs> he uh, acts refers to him as Prince Jake, and he says, don't call me Prince Jake. 
And just to further on my question, uh, it's funny because I feel like the series at this point has gotten, um, for lack of a better term, like crazier than where it started. I mean, it started pretty crazy, but uh, then you, when you move to the end of the series, not counting the last like two chapters, uh, it actually turns into a much more realistic like Independence Day scenario. Yeah. Oh, I love uh, it. Yes, I love it when when the alien invasion goes you know worldwide and everybody knows, and it's not just the Animorphs in the story fighting the battles it, it gets yeah, it so becomes good. a much more straightforward but extremely extremely clever okay we have to make troop movements we have to figure this out we have to sacrifice this it to becomes move more to this like ender's game <laughs> it does it really does it's amazing uh yeah and um this book is really winding down here and that um they they know they have got to go up against the howlers again They've got a new secret weapon. Jake actually has uh, a howler morph he can use. Um, and they come up with this plan to defeat the howlers using memories. Because, again, you know, memories have been really important to this storyline so far. Um, and Jake finally gives Axe a, a much needed pep talk to get him to <laughs> kind of calm down and come back to the side of reason because they'll need him for this fight. Um, and they end up. Uh, kicking their plan off by by drawing the howlers in, and uh, after morphing one, Jake learns the truth about them and and what they're really like inside their mind. Yeah, I mean it's it's. I don't know what I was gonna say. Are you, are you okay? <laughs> You've gotten significantly worse at just picking up without a stop. <laughs> where I leave off. I'm sorry. I feel like Why I should go on go and again? explain the entire plot, but I, I feel like I should stop to let you interject at points. Am I not letting you interject at good points? No, you are. <laughs> I'm having an issue where I've forgotten the smaller beats of this book because I read it so long ago. And then, uh, <laughs> and then on top of that, I'm waiting to see if Nate will jump in. And then if when he didn't, I forgot what I was going to oh, say. Sorry. I see, I see. So. Well, we're, we're in the final kind of act of this book. They're in their last battle here. Jake's learned, you know, uh, the Howlers aren't really this kill-happy race of, of ultra badasses. They're just these, like, kids that think they're Children. playing yeah. a game. So essentially, they're kind of like a, a parallel of the Animorphs themselves, except they're, you know, Crack's twisted version of these kids that he just employs to kill things and yeah and they also learn the biggest thing that i thought was crazy about this is when they learned that the that the howlers because they are this hive mind if uh they had ever gotten wind of the fact that they have not won every game they've played well yeah that's the thing aka destroying out the races that it would completely score through their whole society and and yeah and it ruins their confidence that's important to know too is that the howlers have lost before in the past who knows mm-hmm. how many times they've lost because Krayak always wipes the memory of them losing from them so he wipes them out that's, that's he wipes the ones who lost out so they can't connect back right and that is very much like you said him flipping the board because he's lost yeah and this gives them the first like this gives the animorphs the first ray of hope of like okay we can't really beat these guys hand-to-hand combat we're not gonna kill them but we can get the guy who you know put the pieces on the board to take the pieces off. I sure, this was yeah, a and then we win. Very clever way to end the story. Um, I actually was expecting kind of a a big battle, which I, I mentioned earlier, um, but to to end it in such a I don't want to say anticlimactic way because I feel like that under uh, that undervalues the ending of the story, but in such a clever way, um, they don't actually have to fight them. 
they just need to uh, project these memories onto them. And I don't know, just it was really interesting to me. On another on another level, I mean, it's like uh, it's really interesting because they've tried to push every time the Alimis has showed up in this book series. They've ha- tried to push the fact that interactions with him are not straightforward. If if it's me versus the Yurks and the Alimis is involved in what we're doing, it's not just going to be oh, I just have to beat the Yurk or I just have to beat the enemy and then I'll win. Uh, everything with the with the Alimist brings in that fourth dimension. And so it really is like taking a little 2D person and, and pulling him up into a 3D world. It's like, okay, we don't have to just kill the Howlers. We can affect the people playing the game and work on this whole other level. I mean, it's, it's, it's reminiscent of every time the Alimist has ever been part of the story of what they've right. tried to teach us about how you interact with him. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's a good way to sort of finish these characters off because as soon as they figure out that they're just children playing a game, it, it makes the idea of them flat out murdering them um, so much harder to deal with, really. And that's why Jake struggles here at the end um, of the book, especially when he thinks of the, the howler that he killed. Um, but yeah, you get them strapping the, the memories into this howler, uh, and the game's just over. Crack just quits right there on the spot, teleports the whole team to uh, his little homeworldy kind of spooky place where... Spooky I, I imagine it very much like Nate said, you know, um, I have Sauron, like, right up there on lava pits or, or lava fields everywhere, the, mm-hmm. the big eye overlooking them. Um, and, you know, that's just... James Horner's music blaring in the background. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a terrifying place to be until the Elemist shows up and, you know, is kind of like, well, we won. Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's... it's. I love Jake's line to Krayak. Do you have that up anywhere? Uh, I could very easily pull it up, yeah. Um, Let me see if I can get it. Krayak's line to Jake? Or Jake's line to Krayak? Or, or, Hold on, or on. Elemist's line to Krayak? Hold on, I'm gonna read this whole I'm gonna read this whole Krayak page. Krayak talking to Marco? No, I'm gonna, it's oh. <laughs> it's Krayak. Krayak interacting with Jake at the end of the book. I'm just gonna read it. He was huge, no arms, arms were irrelevant to him. He sat on what might have been a throne or might have been part of him, I couldn't tell. Machine, creature, both, or something that was neither. He turned his single huge blood red eye and turned looked down at me. I was on my knees, human again, hard steel beneath me, darkness all around, but I felt a hand touching mine. The others were with me too, with me cowering beneath the seething evil creature called Krayak. I met his gaze, I closed my eyes, but I could see, still see him looking at me as he w- had watched me mocking in my dreams. We met at, we, oh, we meet at last, face to face, Krayak said, in a low voice that vibrated up through the floor, through the air, a voice so low that it seemed it would shake my very atoms apart. I kept my eyes turned away, though it did no good. I wanted to stand, but I couldn't. I was shaking, my teeth were chattering. What, not so brave now, little Jake, he mocked. Look at you, all of you cowering. Are you frightened? I nodded. Yeah, I am. I admitted in a weak voice, but we won. And then there was a laugh, a laugh that was as powerful and as awesome dread that flowed from Krayak. The big red eye snapped up away from me. I breathed again. The laughter continued, gathering force louder and louder and more and more delighted. I turned and saw the limist. He was in human guise, looking like a wise old man. No more his true face than Eric's face was true. And then, yeah, he just, you know, limits talks. <laughs> yeah, about you know, but, the, the Krayak kind of turns into a Saturday morning villain here for a little bit because they give him actual dialogue, which I yeah. like when they, they make the LMS, you know, they give him his own font in the beginning of the uh, 
the book, uh, their first encounter with the Elemist, when he's just like speaking to them without actually appearing, it's its its own separate font. It gives you this idea of a more grand sort of voice. But when you have uh, the dialogue printed as it is here in this last confrontation, um, it, it's given to him like dialogue from any other character. So it's it's kind of underwhelming. I wish they had maybe chosen a bigger, more imposing font for his uh, speech. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool idea. I, lo- I love when authors mess with sh- like the actual the way the book is written. Yeah, yeah. I'd to, like to see to more untraditional um, type like that because, like I said, it feels like this encounter is a little bit more with a Saturday morning villain. With the whole team there, you imagine them like on their knees all holding hands. Um, it would be a very iconic shot for you know either a season finale or a new season of this kind of show to set up this this grander foe in the scheme of things. I think that's the way I see it in my head. Um, but we've got, you know, the Elemist who appears and kind of gives them the wrap-up and explains that um, even though they won and they didn't really do much for themselves, um, there's a possibility that the Yerks will encounter the Escort later in time and that they'll be better off for it. And that's really the point of, of everything that he asked them to do. And, you know, it seems like it'd be an entirely important thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it's just, just it, I like these open-ended endings that's like, well, we don't really know if we won yet, but in 400 years, we might. You know? Sure, <laughs> it'll definitely be a helpful piece later on. Yep, and I think they need to have those these types of endings for for such a such a series with so many individual stories. In it. You, I don't think there's any way they could have a, a ton of closure at the end of a single book. And maybe I'm wrong. Again, I'm, yeah. this is the third one I've read. Um, no, this, the series is meant to be. The series is meant to be extremely episodic, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you get into some of these more filler books. However, the the ending of the series, I will say, has finality to it until it doesn't anymore. <laughs> and Coleman, yeah. Coleman, and most of our listeners know what I'm talking about. But I think if you were to read the end of this book, you would come away feeling. Uh, like you, you get a good sense of of the end, at least of this uh, situation with the Yerks invading Earth. Everything after that uh, is kind of up in the air or up in space. <laughs> I mean, just I mean, everybody knows what we're talking about, so it's not spoiling it for anyone. But Nate, basically, at the end of the series, I don't tell them the actual complete... scene though. I'm not gonna tell them the scene, but I'm just saying, like, after they've completed the entire, wrapped up everything, the Yerks, everything is finished. Mm-hmm. That they war basically, is done. Like, start a new. Saga. Yeah, or they start introduce a new, a new villain. It's just oh, like a new, like if a manga, like DBZ, you know, like mm-hmm. if it was winding down and it had a perfect conclusion and ending, and then the art- artist did like one more chapter that was like, oh, and now I'm setting up a new story arc. Sure, but okay. now the series is over. <laughs> yeah, and I'm also going to have my characters like possibly die right then and not tell you. You know, exactly. It's, it it's leaves insane. them off in a bit of turmoil that really left a lot, the majority of the fan base, wanting more and never getting it. And that's a big reason why we're doing this podcast uh, is because we feel like there will one day hopefully be a continuation of this story um, that exists in some kind of canon of the series, not the multitudes of fan fiction that exists out there already. Um and, you know, we would love to help guide the making, the crafting of this sequel series if it ever were to occur. We've got our own ideas, in fact. So why... We won't why, delve into them now, though. Fair. Why uh, Why did the story stop? 
oh, at that point, the artists or the, the authors fully admit they had completely exhausted ideas. They, they'd wrapped up the story of the Earth invasion. And after 56 books, they were ready to do other things. <laughs> okay, and that's fair. Yeah, they, they wanted to write like multiple other series. And like at the same time, sure. and they just couldn't fit Animorphs into that. And they, I don't know why they didn't want to. Cont- I guess because they wanted to wrap it up, they didn't want to continue ghostwriting or get have the. They were definitely not happy with a few of the ghostwriters who were writing, and so they didn't want more crap books. That's fair. And they couldn't write it themselves, so they just wrapped it up. Sure. Exactly. Um, yeah, and like I said, most of the fan base, you know, either loves the ending, hates the ending, or actually, as we had told Michael Grant in our interview, it's not that the fan base hates the actual ending, they just hate that that's where it ended, and they want more. Um, and I, myself, I love the ending, I think it's very fitting. Um, but, you know, we don't need to talk about the end of the series right now. The, the end of this book was <laughs> We've fantastic. We've the end of the series like every other episode, so it's not that big of a deal. That's kind of true. But at the same time, I want to wind down talking about this specific book and give my review on that. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's go so, into reviews. Well, uh, yeah. that, can I, well, yeah, let me make one comment quick on the, uh, the second to last okay. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, and maybe, Coleman, I think you maybe started leading into this, uh, or maybe, maybe not. But the very last... Um, couple lines of chapter 26 where they're talking to Krayak um Jake morphs into the um into the howler and is is basically like scanning through the memories and um none of the memories got through except one with uh him and Cassie uh like holding each other and kissing and um I really like what he says to Krayak and it says you you were too late Something got through to the Howler's collective memory. Krayak says, what? And he just says, love. And then that's that's how it ends with Krayak. I, it felt a little cheesy, but at the same time, I really <laughs> appreciated it. Because um, I think that's well, such because a... Because really, that's the one thing the Howlers were missing in absolutely. their, their and existence. It's a strong idea um, that, it, that could fundamentally change them. Uh, maybe not that one, well, in, love... one image alone, but... I, I think that could have the pos- or potential to to change at least individuals, if not the whole collective race. Well, I love that he's he, the Limus tells them that the next race that the uh, that the Howlers tried to destroy, they tried to destroy them by yeah, kissing them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's amazing. That's that's what I get. I get what you're saying. Like, it's very like cheesily executed, but the concept is really Absolutely. clever and good. Yeah. So that but, yeah, yeah that that winds it all down and um, as we hear from Jake you know even though he's he's back on home he's happy from their victory he's uh, feeling a lot more loving and open towards Cassie even though you know he's looking at her he still is very very torn apart by his feelings of letting this one howler die now um, which is very very I think symbolic of this entire series is even when they have victories there are massive major defeats that they personally suffer um and it's always represented in like nightmares and uh like like we said they do later develop very realistic ptsd from all of this yeah most of including the end of the series uh most of the endings of these books are more bittersweet than anything. Exactly, because it's they wanted to really nail home the uh, the the point that in these wars, even the winners still have great losses and great casualties along the way, um, and you know it points out a lot of uh, moral gray areas 
um, in fighting these battles. Because when the series started off, it was very much like, very idealistic, very, we are good, the enemies are evil, that is that. And I think the longer they tried to keep this series going, the more they had to paint it realistic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, real quick, can you guys hear that on my end? I don't hear anything. I don't though. hear anything either. Okay, it just started storming, like, insanely. Oh, no. And, like, I got water hitting my window and thunder and... Oh, it's such a beautiful day here in Minnesota right now. Man, (laughs) we are all going to go catch Pokemon afterwards outside. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. So, yeah, in order to further that goal, uh, I will give my my quick review. Um, I, I don't think it's a surprise to say that we really enjoyed this book. Um, it's pretty obvious going into it that we thought it was special enough that it, we'd bring in a third host for it. Um, and the fact that this was one of the books that I said, no, you got to read this one cause it's actually good. Um, so for, for everything that the book gives us all the character development, more Eric, uh, more actual romance between two of the lead characters, uh, we get massive defeats and major victories. We get the introduction of not just one God, character but another one who's evil and it, it furthers the series it breathes new life into the series uh which was much needed at this point and for for all of it i can't really even point out too many flaws i don't want to talk about flaws in this book i just like it so for that reason it's getting five out of five war maker is screwed from me nate you want to go next? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, again, <laughs> I have a bit of an outsider perspective. Um, I didn't think I was going to enjoy reading the book, but I, I ended up really liking it. Um, my comment earlier about um, liking some more of the... It'd be really great to have some more of the adult uh, themes. Um, that actually kind of came through a little bit in this book, and it's it's told in a way that's friendly for young a younger audience. But... Um, you have some very real concepts here. Like, um, I guess it doesn't, I don't need to get into detail, but uh, it was, it was a good book. I would give it um, in the, uh, of the three I've read, I would actually probably say it's my favorite, I guess five out of five. Wow. Wow. Or three out of three. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't feel obligated because I gave it a five. No, no, no. I, I like I said, it's my favorite. So, I mean, I feel like, in the context of having read the other two books, um, I have to give it a perfect score because that's that's like it set the bar. Okay, well, what would you give book one then? Uh, book one was probably my least favorite. So, oh, you're um, kidding? <laughs> no, I, I preferred uh, Andalite Chronicles. I liked the backstory and um, there, there, the the there more wacky of... sci-fi setup. Yeah, and I can see that they were writing book one like straight on target for like you said like a 12 year old mm-hmm. audience um so they they definitely diverted from that later on with like analyte chronicles in this book yeah and i i think that 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 may have impacted my liking of it um i just i thought i thought the story was a little more complex um the first book felt a little kitschy and again for the younger audience it makes sense um but i i don't remember what i gave a score of when we did the last podcast for Andalite Chronicles, but I think um, Andalite Chronicles, you gave a four out of five. All right, yeah. so I'm going to give as, three out of as five a, for, As a non, uh, non-fan, and then a three out of five as like a technical or something. I can't remember. Okay. Well, I, I thought you I gave two. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, kind of it depends on my mood, I guess. But I would give the, <laughs> um, the first book probably a three out of five. 
Okay, cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. It's essential. That's I mean, still pretty good. <laughs> uh, so you're giving this book a five out of five what? Uh, you hadn't thought of a clever <laughs> little rating system yet, had you? Uh, Escorts. What? <laughs> oh, I don't know if that's just going to rip not. off what I said. <laughs> Which ones? <laughs> Which ones? Say? You got to pick, pick a uh, guild. Uh, oh, Warmaker, no. Escorts. I forgot the other guilds. I already said Warmaker. He did. Yeah, I can't use that. Oh. Um, <laughs> Merchant's Guild. <laughs> The the gossip, the gossip guild. guild. Yeah, yeah. The gossip sure, guild. Sure, there you go. Guild. Oh, that sounds fine. <laughs> and uh okay. Well see, okay, I went into this book um hearing so much about it, how great it was, how how amazing it was, and uh, I think it lived up to a lot of that. I mean the the clever ending as we talked about, um having these gods really start to explain their game and why they're sticking to it. It answers a lot of questions that honestly without this book, um a lot of the stuff with Kraken and Limus is a little contrived. It, it's it's there to move the plot along, but it doesn't make sense why these gods would be affecting these individuals. This book explained that like cleverly and, and well done. So um, this book is essential for reading and the series in general. And as a story itself, it does uh, kind of pander to like a kind of blockbuster feel to it. Like it's it's a one big storyline, one big fight that they're trying to figure out and and take these howlers down and and it moves on to dark, uh, deeper stuff and and so it, it does cross the range of what we like about animorphs and and what we generally want from these books when we sit down and read the later ones. Um, that said, I'm gonna be a little more critical than you two in the sense that. For a series that, in my mind, has created some iconic imagery with its aliens, with its worlds, uh, with some some of that stuff, this one really crapped the bed for me. <laughs> the uh, the, the lazy that, sort of world building here? Yeah, the, the world design. No, not the world building, because the escort concept and their race and the different cultures, I think, are all good. But the actual descriptions of what they looked like was nonsensical and yeah, dumb. Right. Like, it just, it was not good. And to me the aliens are a big part of, of this book series. They're huge. Even the stuff like the Lyrons, the other aliens they run into and multiple other ones, they at least like make sense or I can picture them. These ones, they were just, I mean, I, they, I don't think they spent a lot of time on that, which they had bigger things to worry about at this point in the series. But still that really hurt the book for me to the point where I literally had to make up my own alien to insert here to make the story work right that and the uh, word escort or escort is just hard to pronounce yeah, and dumb. it's just yeah so it to me that actually was like that takes it even as as great as this book is which i do think it's a great book and essential that takes it down two pegs for me i can't i can't say that this is anything more than a three out of five because <laughs> the design like being able to describe when you're doing alien races and stuff being able to describe that in a way that makes sense for the story you're telling that's huge. That's that's a big part of why I read books. And so to really crap that one on this one, it really hurt the book for me until I just ignored the author. Sure. Um, well, that's that's an awesome, wild uh, variation in um, reasons we like this book and uh, our scores, especially. Yeah, and mine is a, you didn't let me say what it was. <laughs> it's a three out of five consumer escorts. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I, n- I like n- those None guys. of us said, you know... Five out of five Krayaks or whatever. I thought about <laughs> or, it. I thought about it. Yeah. You could have. It would have been an five easy one. Five out of five one. giant red eyes. <laughs> there you five go. Five out of five Sauron. red eyes. <laughs> that would have been good. I would have laughed if you would have said that. Yeah, this opportunity. All right. 
Well, that's that. Yeah, that that winds down our review of uh, Animorphs book number twenty six, The Attack. Um, thank goodness we're done with that, <laughs> and we can finally move <laughs> on to murkier waters. I should say. Well, we still got book uh, thirty three, which is the real last uh, K. Applegate written until one. the last two. <laughs> until the last two books. And, and of course, <laughs> all the good Megamorphs we're going to be reading because the next oh, two Megamorphs are to get amazing. More Megamorphs. Yeah, they're great Megamorphs. I cannot it's wait. Megamorph. That sounds exciting. Uh, Megamorphs. Megamorphs are. There's a series of five books they did alongside the series where they're not. I mean, they are important to the overall plot, but they don't really affect things. And they're they're like literally, if the Animorphs book series is a TV show, the Megamorphs are movies. Okay. Uh, they're like big huge stories yeah they're more cinematic and a little bit more deeper involved they're a little bit longer and they are from the perspective of multiple characters they jump around throughout the whole cast okay each chapter is a different uh character in the book and it's game of thrones it's it's flat out game of thrones okay yeah and it, and it um, works sorry. so much better for the Animorph series. And, you know, if, if they did a sequel series, I would really like to see them switch to this more character-based chapter s- structure. Yeah. And so, like, the last, just to give you an idea of their scale, the last book, uh, they went back into the time of dinosaurs and had to survive um, with their morphing ability with dinosaurs. And the next book, uh, is the next book the time-traveling one? Yes, the next book is, well, they, they both technically are. The third Megamorphs yeah. is where, yeah, they're time-traveling to the past um, to fight the Yerks. And then the the fourth Megamorphs book is where they travel to an alternate future where the Yerks have already won. No, 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 no you're wrong, you're wrong. Or it's you're an wrong. alternate past so, where the Yerks have won. No, you're wrong, still. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the next book is, like you said, you're right, it's uh, they get jumped around. So... Uh, yeah, Nate, you remember in Andalite Chronicles where they had the time mm-hmm. sphere? Yep. Oh, yeah, that so finally next, comes back. In the, yeah, <laughs> okay. in the next Megamorphs book, uh, uh, Yurk, uh, Subvisor 4 or something like that, he finds uh, that time sphere, and he goes back throughout history and changes Earth historical events uh, to make a better world for the Yurks to take over. So he like has George Washington get killed on the Delaware, and he has England lose the Trafalgar. Uh, Trafalgar. The Battle of Trafalgar. Trafalgar. Battle of Trafalgar. Um, Henry the Eighth. Uh, he has a different side win, and Henry gets killed. Like he just goes throughout all these huge, huge events in history. He basically changes America changes into a shittier version of america Nazi. that's easier to take yeah. over because <laughs> their whole yeah. their whole operation is centered around america so of course it it's is. really I mean, cool it's it's very much like a history true. lesson okay interesting yeah and so they have to go back they follow him back through time and try to fix things okay. uh and then and then yeah the 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 megamorphs after that is the entire series rewritten if the uh, kids had never gotten their morphing abilities, yeah, if they had that's never been in that construction, oh. yeah, if they had never been in that construction site, how would the York invasion would have happened to each of them um, without knowing about it or having morphing abilities? So it's really like an alternate book one. <laughs> it goes, I mean, like Tobias is a sad super loner kid who ends up being falling in with the sharing because it offers like friends and family and he becomes infested and he's a yurk in that book. And like, you know, it just, it gets crazy. And the invasion happens way earlier because like, you know, the animorphs weren't there to like stop things. Interesting. Yeah. So does it, it's does crazy. It, is it basically canon or does it end in such a way that it could fit back into the series? It fits back okay. in the series. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, they're really nice. Most companions. of them are Elimist. Yeah, most of them have to do with the Elimist, okay. uh, except the except dinosaur one where they were the dinosaur one where they're sent yeah, back the in time one... by a nuclear explosion. <laughs> Like a, a submarine, a nuke sub was like off the coast and was like leaking, and then it blows up while they try to help, and it sends them back in time. <laughs> and so they have to, they have to create another explosion that will send them forward in time. Is that all you it know, takes? yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> apparently, that's uh, one of our flaws. I think in reading that book was the ending. But um, well, no, no, no. I I now believe that the Elimist, because he cares about them being in the right place at the right time, he guided. He guided his hand a little bit in to make sure they blew back into the right I bet eras. the Elemist was the reason why those crab people were on Earth in the first place in the time of the dinosaurs. <laughs> because, yes, they do encounter an alien race that's inhabiting Earth back in the time of the dinosaurs that helped them <laughs> to get back. And and we find out the very important detail that broccoli is actually an alien import to our planet. <laughs> right. No, no, I, really. I actually <laughs> do have one question, and this is probably explained at some point in the books. Maybe not. Sure. Every series seems to have its out. It'd be kind of funny if I actually brought this up last in the last podcast you guys invited me to. But is the topic of language ever covered? How do all these races, how are they able to communicate with one another? Well, because it's it's not necessarily language as it is thought speak, which is what most of the uh, aliens use. And um, thought speak is not so much a language as it is like a mental form of communication that interprets the other being's thoughts in a way that such a person like a human who speaks English would perceive them in English. Yep. And that's how yeah, it it's works. like your mind, your mind tries to interpret thought speak. So you don't always get a one, one translation, but it's, it's universal for the most sure, part. And, then, and they do, they do run into aliens who don't okay, speak the same and language and they just have to deal with uh, them. Yeah. It, language is actually very uh, well handled in this series. Okay. I thought. Cause the, the escort, actually speak don't they i don't think I no they them. do thought speak they speak in thought oh, speak okay thought i speak. just have somehow well, you, it's, you, after a while you stop paying attention to the little greater than less than brackets, brackets right. you know right um but no uh they they do uh try to establish lots of rules um throughout the series for for alien things like language and such and they do a pretty good job of it yeah, and the Yurks they don't have to worry about because the Yurks take over whatever brain they're in and can speak that language. Right, so. and then they basically just speak as humans. Yep. In fact, um, one of uh, the most interesting books in the series is uh, the Visor One uh, book called just plainly Visor. It's a uh, story oh, it's of... the Visor Chronicles, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's the story of how Visor One came to Earth, inhabited the first human body, and um, started learning about and coincidentally kind of falling in love with humans. And that's a fantastic yeah. book that you should read, Nate. And that's that's a dark <laughs> book because that one deals with like uh, the Visor letting uh, her host body like do drugs and have sex just to keep her happy. Interesting. And yeah, like it's it gets pretty dark. It's it's a great great uh, uh, companion piece to this series, um, and it definitely does something for for explaining Visor One's character way more, which, of course, we, well, Nate doesn't know, but Visor One is Marco's mom. <laughs> what? Spoilers. But yeah, the Visor, Visor One, the Yurk, is in uh, Marco's mom's body. That's her controller. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's introduced in, like, book 17 also, or something. Like, or book 15. the first human controller, important to note. Yeah. Well, that, that host isn't the first human controller, but that that Visor, that Yurk, was the first Yurk to take a human body. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I meant. Wait, no, it's not because technically, it oh, you're right. It happens in the Andalite Chronicles. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, but she was one anyway. of the first to really understand the potential of the human species. Yeah. Boom. Well, it's, I mean, like the great thing about Visitor Chronicles is because it, it does have current events that are taking place in the Animorphs universe where the Animorphs are actually like affecting it and, and Visitor 3 is there doing stuff. But uh, all the flashback stuff plays as like an amazing like sci-fi book series about a parasitic alien invasion on a planet, like from the perspective of the parasites. Really, the Animorphs uh, is just a modern retelling of Invasion of the Body spa- Snatchers if the mm-hmm. humans actually had a weapon to fight back, which would be, you know, the morphing ability. We've, yeah. Pretty much every single one of those movies, all the remakes end with uh, humans being taken out. So yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we had the morphine ability. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's the only weapon we have, essentially. Um, so really, that's, uh, that's all we have on Book 26, The Attack. However, we would love for you all to come back next time and listen to us talk about Book Number 27, The Exposed, which is uh, another Rachel book. And boy, I, I don't think we're... Uh, too excited to get to this one, I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> I've not heard great things. I, I am kind of excited in that it's one that I haven't read, and it's one that uh, this, this is not, I don't I don't know what the community's opinion on The Exposed is, to be honest with you. It's another Chi-centric book, so that's kind of uh, enticing to me, I'll say. Yeah, it's, it's weird that uh, it seems like, and I obviously can't say it for this one because it's being ghostwritten, but... There does seem to be a lot of books in the series where, like, like one of the alien races is prominent in the book, and then the next book, they're also prominent. Like, it's happened a couple times with the Alimus. It's happened a couple times with uh, the Chi, where, like, the next book after is like, oh, here's another Chi book. You, you like them in the last one? Here you go. <laughs> sure. Another. Yeah, well, in this case, I don't mind it, um, because whenever we see them get missions from Eric, it's always pretty, pretty entertaining. Those are always some of the better mm-hmm. books, I think. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how they incorporate this squid morph into uh, this story. <laughs> it's weird to me that they, uh, for their first ghostwritten book, because they said in interviews that most of the ghostwriters weren't familiar with the series. So it's weird that they wrote an outline for one of the weirdest races in the books. Like, they didn't try to do something more normal to, like, ease into ghostwriters. They just threw them in. And hope for the best. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you know, they're doing a sci-fi series, so I think the assumption there was that if their their ghost writers are any good at being sci-fi writers, they should be able to just dive right in and capture the the feeling of these books. And they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some cases, like I said, some of my favorite books are are ghost written. Um, Me too. And and I think a big fact or a big reason why is because yeah, the the Applegates, the Grants were there doing the outlines for these books. These are ideas that they initially had and maybe the ghostwriter kind of expanded on is all. Yeah. So I appreciate so. that. And honestly, I don't know uh, what book we would like to get Nate back in on, but boy, we would love to have you again in the future someday. Uh, like I said, not for the exposed. We'll, <laughs> we'll leave you out <laughs> on that one. But uh, some of these megamorphs, uh, some of these Chronicles books, they're excellent, excellent pieces to bring you in on, and, and they're and they're one shots, so you know you they don't deal with as much um, backstory and things like that. They're just jump okay, right in. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I also involved, so. really, yeah, yeah, good. That's uh, we want you involved, <laughs> and I, I really like the outsider perspective that you're able to give us, and kind of the fact that 
Coleman and I are basically controlling the narrative of Animorphs for you because we've had you read the prequel, the first book, and then this well-established uh, uh, later in the series book. We're going to have you jump ahead again, and, and I, I promise you it will be a distinctly, distinctively different uh, feeling. Okay. Um, with these characters, well, we, could, we could go straight. We could go straight from uh, Jake and Cassie's first kiss to Cassie screwing they're Jake for, and Nurse Animorphs <laughs> over, right. and for, no one trusting her to again. Their, their their first fight, uh, or their yeah. first inner turmoil. Spoilers, guys. There, there. Well, they, there's a lot of drama, and there's a lot of uh, mistakes and failures to be had throughout the series. See, Nate, what you don't understand is I'm using spoilers, not as things that are going to ruin the series Subject. for you, but Pull like, oh, wait, that sounds really, yeah, that sounds really yeah, cool. Yeah, he's trying I'll to lure you in, man. Mm, yeah. <laughs> there's good stuff to come. There's there's reason why we're talking about these books, as I, I hope you've seen thus far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm Honestly, I'm really surprised that this story is uh, as depthy. You can use that word. Uh, as depthy <laughs> as Ooh, depths, just like in The Exposed. <laughs> Yeah, that was a bad joke. That was a yeah, bad I, joke. Just, I got it. The exposed takes <laughs> place underwater. So He's not depths. looking at the cover of the book like I am. Well, you showed it, it made to more me. Sense. Showed <laughs> me before we started. <laughs> he exposed you to yeah, it. It was really dirty. <laughs> I felt, well, felt a little. I don't know. Uh, well, that's thought speak for this, folks. Whoa, that's, <laughs> that's thought speak, folks, for this week. I said that's yeah. I'm gonna say this week for you, folks, or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, no promises on when the next episode is coming out, but we're hoping that it'll be in less time than it took to get this one out for sure. Um, mm-hmm. It's very important that you all check out our website, thoughtspeakcast.com, for further updates. We are also highly active on Facebook, mostly at facebook.com slash thoughtspeak. Um, just want to give a shout out to a Connor Muldowney who actually messaged me on there today, this morning, just to say, you guys are the best. And you know what? Connor, you're the best. Yeah, exactly. Connor, people like you are the best. And uh, people like you are the reason why we're still doing this podcast, um, even at the sluggish pace that we've been been scooting at so far. Um, it's been a trying, trying year this 2016, but uh, we're making the best of it. And we've got a lot of projects underway that we're working on still, but we always want you guys to come back and check on us. Thoughtspeakcast.com, Facebook, slash Thoughtspeakcast. Uh, and that's really all I got for you. So on behalf of uh, the podcast, I just want to thank Nate once again for coming out. Uh, well, for letting, for letting us record in your basement. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I, mentioned it's a, I mentioned it's a lovely sunny day in Minnesota, and here we are stuck inside in your basement. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, Nate, you got any, or Coleman, do you got anything else? Uh, just that, I mean, we really appreciate everything you guys said to us and all the new reviews we've gotten. Um, it really is our audience, the only reason that we're doing this. I mean, we love getting together and talking about Animorphs and having a podcast at all. But as as Mitch and I are like going out and doing our own thing and starting other podcasts, you know, we have we have no plans to leave this one behind. And we want to we want to finish the series strong and have this be a, a nice archive for people to either get into the series or, or be nostalgic about it. And that's that's what the podcast has been so far. So it's it's great that we can continue doing it and it's because of people like like connor here who messages on facebook randomly and you know said hey you guys are great yes it, it, we agree <laughs> thanks yeah and on another <laughs> note i just want to point out that we understand that uh you people have a lot of options now for for animorphs 
themed entertainment. There are, are a number of podcasts <laughs> popping up, and we just want to say um, thank you for so much for sticking with us. If that's the case, uh, we encourage you to check some of the other guys out. I know that they could be pretty entertaining as well. Um, and if you're you're interested in a more free form kind of discussion. Uh, centered around each book, you know, keep coming back and listening to us because we'll try desperately to entertain you throughout. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's it for this week. Uh, again, thank you guys and jump on iTunes if you want and leave us a review that helps out the show a lot. Uh, we'll keep you posted on when, uh, Nate comes back to the show. We'll have Nate watch 2016 <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> probably 2017, when... <laughs> more likely <laughs> 2017, 2018, Boy, five months away. like that. <laughs> But we'll put a clicker on the website Six and just if we'll we'll post rumors about maybe him showing up, you know. Exactly. And you know what? <laughs> was, it, was that Nate? I don't know. Uh, it, is he recording? It'll really help to to leave these kind reviews, kind comments on our th- uh, Facebook, uh, encouraging Nate to come back on. <laughs> we need to set up a voting system to bring him back, and then then I never come back again because everyone votes no. <laughs> no, I don't think that'll happen. Tell him he's wrong. Who else people. have we? Who else have we had guests are on the podcast? Uh, so it's far, just, just Nate, Liz. Nate and my wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just Nate and your wife. Yeah, she wasn't even my wife at the time. <laughs> right. We're looking to get more guests, but uh, show, show Nate some love and some kind words, and we will be back to bring you a book that neither of us have read and uh, don't know what to expect. What to read? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so join us next time when we talk about The Exposed. But until then, I have been one of your tripod hosts, Mitchell. I have been another tripod leg, Coleman. And me, the third tripod leg this time around, uh, Nate. I like this imagery a lot. Tripod. So wait, are we just like balancing all the times that Nate's not here? Is like his leg broken? <laughs> we've been making and it work with two this this far. We've we've been a duo pod, and it's kind of worked out. I don't know how. You're like it's a like person. Wobbly legs or something. You got feet. <laughs> okay, we're yeah. a person. <laughs> exactly. So uh, how do people walk on these two legs? <laughs> come back next time for just the duo. I promise it'll be just as good. <laughs> Probably, maybe. <laughs>